0: We are in this season of the church year that has historically been marked out as Lent. Lent is a time for reflection and preparation and repentance as we look forward to Easter. And this year, to help us in that season, we are preaching through the seven deadly sins. If you weren't with us last week, a brief refresher. The seven deadly sins are a summary that the church has used to talk about these different ways that sin can get its claws into us. They aren't deadly because they're the worst things you can do. We certainly would feel like murder or slavery or something like that is a far worse sin. They're not the worst sins, but they are the first sins. They described these warped things in our hearts that lead us into sin with that in mind, let's dive into the second of those sins this morning, that of wrath. I think we often feel conflicted about the idea of anger and wrath. That conflictedness can exist in our culture. On the one hand, we are a society almost terrified of violence and the destructive power of anger. We do everything we can to restrain it in our education and our values about taming and domesticating those feelings. We raise our kids on a diet of stories where everyone ends up joining hands and singing happy songs. I mean, have you watched children's television lately? I watch it sometimes with my kids, and that's what it always is. Some of us worry about letting them play with toy weapons, and we train them, all of us as they get older, to be terrified of expressions of anger, and to be civil and tolerant and nice. And at the same time, we love anger. We're immersed in it. It's in the television and movies we watch, often shot through with revenge and rage. It's on the TV discussions and radio shows, whether you listen to right-wing talk radio or watch left-wing talk television. There's this constant drumbeat of things to be outraged about. Every day, a new reason to be ticked off, and anger is in many ways the driving fuel of the internet. Twitter outrage machine and Facebook political arguments and all the online stories that I've recommended to people with a comment, but seriously, don't read the comments. We're terrified of anger and we're deeply angry people. I think that that conflictedness stems in part from the fact that wrath itself is a conflicting idea. It is not as clearly wrong as the other deadly sins the best evidence of that is that unlike greed or pride or sloth, we see wrath present in the character of God. We don't always dwell on it in our modern world, but the wrath of God is a real biblical idea. Just a couple weeks ago, while we were working through Romans, we saw Paul um, call us to refrain from vengeance and then rest that on the idea of the wrath of God. We see it in Jesus. As much as there is a gentle and kind side of Jesus, there's an angry side as well. When he confronts the Pharisees, woe to you, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. When he storms through the temple, flipping over tables and beating money changers with a whip. And even beyond God's character, we all have a sense that anger is at times appropriate. When we confront the greatest evils of this world, when we face exploitation and oppression and injustice, We should feel angry. When we see men murdered and women hurt, it would be wrong to shrug our shoulders in indifference. So what do we do with that? In what sense is wrath right? And in what sense is it a sin? To try to make sense of it, I want to explore anger at three levels this morning. First, I want us to reflect a little bit about the nature of it. Then I want us to discuss the root of it. And lastly, talk about the solution to our anger, how we can find it healed. Let's start with the nature of wrath. First, before anything else, when we talk about wrath in this sermon, we're talking about something more than just a momentary feeling. There will absolutely be moments when we feel the emotion of anger, and that's not inherently wrong. Paul says in Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. What's more, there are things that should make us feel angry in the world, like we said anger at injustice. And there are other times that while we might feel that anger and it's not exactly justified, like the 20th time my kid asks me if he can watch TV in an hour, I mean, I might feel frustrated there, but it's not necessarily wrong. Although in all those cases, I can still respond in ways that are wrong. At the same time, though, anger is seen in scripture as a sin. In Colossians 3, Paul gives one of these lists of different sins for believers to avoid, and this is how it starts. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And he goes on to list other scenes, but the first three there, anger and wrath and malice, which is kind of simmering, bitter anger, those are at the top of the list. So how can anger be at times appropriate, but also be condemned as a sin? I think that rests on the nature of wrath itself. In the Old Testament, there is no special word for anger. It simply uses the Hebrew word to burn, the same word that you use for fire, for a fever, or venom. And part of the reason for that is that anger feels like burning, our cheeks flush and we get hot when we're mad. But that idea is also meant to describe anger itself. Anger is like a fire. How? First, in that it spreads. Anger spreads. Growing up, I remember seeing these ads where Smokey the Bear talked about the danger of forest fires. What made them so dangerous? Well, it was that they can grow so quickly from something small to something impossible to contain. That a campfire that you roasted marshmallows over and didn't quite put out all the way, a cigarette flicked out of a car window, those things look tiny, but if the conditions are right, they can become these walls of fire miles long that is why scripture puts such an emphasis on controlling our anger like fire anger has to be handled carefully as proverbs 29 11 puts it a fool gives full vent to his anger but a wise man keeps himself under control otherwise a little spark can burn down a thousand trees we've already mentioned a distinction above between godly and sinful anger But in practice, those things aren't that simple. Anger is always dangerous because anger always loves to spread, even justified righteous anger. Think about that angry crowd out on the street. They might be protesting something good and just, but the control slips just a little bit and rage erupts and buildings burn and shops are looted and innocent people are hurt. When I feel ticked off, my first response is to justify it, to say, look, you know, this is justified anger. But even when that's true, it doesn't change the nature of the fire. Uncontrolled anger is always sin because it will inevitably grow and spread beyond what is just. Anger spreads like fire, and it also burns like fire. Anger burns. It's destructive. I think we all get that when we think about it because that's maybe our first picture of anger. What we picture is rage. It's the Hulk, right? Bruce Banner, the mild, timid scientist. He loses control and his muscles bulge and suddenly it's Hulk smash! It's the child's temper tantrum, playing about, wrecking anything that they can get their hands on. Anger burns and destroys. More than just rage, though, anger constantly leads us to destroy people. Both Jesus in Matthew 5 and John in 1 John 3 equate hating someone with murder. And I think we tend to think of this as, I don't know, the statement that we shouldn't like fantasize about killing people in our minds, but there's more than just that going on. See, anger makes us depersonalize people. We cannot look at someone as a dignified, beautiful human being when we're also mad at them. Inevitably, in our wrath, we start to warp who the person is. Their faults are magnified, their virtues are ignored, and it's telling to me that so many of our most hateful insults equate people with animals, or with excrement, or with other things that are less than human. The more we hate someone, the less human we make them. Our anger actually makes us destroy people's humanity in our hearts, even before it does in our actions. So anger spreads and it burns like fire, and one more reality, it also smolders. Anger smolders. One of the interesting things scripture warns about anger is its duration. In Ephesians 4.26, which we read, Paul says, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Why does it matter how long we let ourselves be angry? It's because anger isn't just a problem when it explodes out and we lose our tempers and release our rage. It is also a force of spreading destruction when we keep it smoldering inside. Like the coals of a fire, it slowly burns us up from within. Dante's Inferno is this fictional allegory of this trip Dante takes through hell. In it, he sees people ruled by different sins and the judgment that those sins face. And so Dante gets to the part of hell where people live who are ruled by wrath. And it's this huge swamp, and initially what we see are these souls who are enraged, and they're biting and fighting and chasing each other through this swamp, slogging through the mud in this constant battle. And Dante thinks, oh, okay, these are the wrathful souls. But Virgil, his guide, says, no, these are some of the wrathful souls, but look closer, and what you'll see are these bubbles that are emerging up through the water. And those bubbles come from the sullen the other wrathful souls, and they're mired down in the mud underneath the water at the bottom of the swamp. They're not in rage anymore, but they're there gurgling, constantly recounting all of the ways they've been wronged by the world and um, by God. The smoldering, sullen ones. We sometimes struggle to recognize our anger because we only think of rage, of blowing up. But there is a huge amount of anger that festers in our hearts. We let it destroy our hope, our love, our joy in the world, and we become sullen and bitter. Anger doesn't just lead us to destroy other people. It actually destroys us as it festers in our hearts. I've always been struck by this quote by the author Frederick Buechner. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are given back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that when you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. As anger simmers inside us, we slowly become slaves to it. It uses our hope and our love as fuel, burning them to ashes of cynicism and bitterness. It slowly consumes us until all that is left is the anger itself. So when does anger become sin? That's the question, remember, and the answer is that anger becomes sin when we don't treat it like the fire it is, when we let it spread uncontrolled when we let it burn and destroy what should be cherished and loved, when we let it smolder in our hearts, slowly consuming us. So that's the nature of anger, but we need to dig a little deeper. If it's a fire, then where does it come from? What lights the spark? And answering that question moves us from thinking about the nature of our anger to the root of it. What is the root of our wrath? In one sense, this question actually has a positive answer. Our anger comes from our desire for justice. This is actually what scripture is talking about when it talks about the wrath of God. Those two ideas of wrath and justice are linked in the Bible. In Psalm seven, for instance, um, God is a righteous judge, a God who is angry every day. When we look at the world and feel frustrated and enraged by the brokenness and evil in it, God agrees. When we talk about righteous anger, We meet, in a sense, anger that agrees with God's. But wrath becomes sinful when that desire for justice goes astray. Sin is a disordered desire, we said last week. And in the case of wrath, it is a disordered desire for justice. A disordered desire for justice. This is where Psalm 37, which we read this morning, is really helpful. It starts with this command, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. And that same warning against fretting appears in verses seven and eight as well. And I know the word fret, look, it's not the best English translation because it sounds like, I don't know what, like your grandmother does. Oh, dearie me, I'm fretting. What Paul, or what the psalm is saying is don't be fearful because of those who do evil. There is a recognition of our desire for justice here. And the psalmist talks about fearing those who do evil and do wrong. He means those that do that in ways that affect us or affect the world. So we're seeing this injustice and wickedness. Um, and, but then he warns us in verse 8 against wrath in response. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. So the anger the psalmist warns against isn't just anger and injustice, but anger that stems from a fear in the face of injustice. We are afraid that justice won't be done, and so our wrath is our then taking that justice into our own hands. Sinful anger is a result of fear. It's not wrong to desire justice. It's not wrong to want evil to be punished. But anger enters the picture when we believe God isn't looking out for those things. We are afraid for our cause, and so we take matters into our own hands. That's why Psalm 37 is set on drawing a contrast between our sinful anger and our trust in God. What's the alternative to fretting over the evildoer? Trust in the Lord and do good, verse 3. Take delight in the Lord, verse 4. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, verse 7. Our anger betrays a lack of trust in God, and it goes even further than that, because here's the full process that happens in anger. We see things that are wrong in the world, and we don't believe that God is going to fix them. We're afraid that the wrong will win, that we will be lost in the face of evil, and so we take matters into our own hands. We take wrath for ourselves, and so we become the judges. We put ourselves in the place of God. At the very root of it, anger is dangerous because it leads us to worship ourselves, to idolatry. We read Paul discussing our wrath and God's wrath a few weeks ago from Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is marking off wrath as something that properly belongs to him alone. When we take it into our hands, when we let wrath characterize our lives, what we are doing is stepping into the shoes of the divine. Let me think about this. Think about the things I get angry about. Some of those things might be warranted, um, but, but they're still minor, right? You know, oh, why didn't you tell me people were coming over for dinner tonight? And I get angry at people for things that aren't warranted, that are just inconveniences. How dare you make me wait for my coffee? I even get angry about things that are right. Oh, honey, you're going to feed the children instead of listening to this story I want to tell you? See, none of those are outrage over injustice or evil. They're outrage over something else, something that comes from a much darker place. See, as we let anger rule us, it actually warps our sense of who we are. As we act like God, we start to think that we are God's that the glory that belongs to God belongs to us, the respect due to God is owed to us. We don't trust him and so we replace him with ourselves. We become the judges and the more we do that, the more warped our judgments about the world actually become. That means that anger should really, really scare us. It's not a little thing. It's not peevishness or overreacting. It's the making of ourselves into little gods, and that can make people truly terrifying. In the grip of anger, we can become tyrants and bullies and monsters and demand that the universe bow before us and say that our hand is swift to punish it when it doesn't. That's also what makes anger so attractive, that root of idolatry. It's why we entertain ourselves with it, why we enjoy it so much, we seek out opportunities for anger and court outrage, and if we didn't, most of modern media would probably not exist. Anger is fun at its root because it is empowering. It makes us feel strong and vindicated. It is indulging our own self-worship, and that is an attractive and deadly thing just a moment we're going to talk about some truths that help us to fight against that anger but before we do i just want to double down on something that i I know i've kind of actually mentioned several times here and i see in my own heart and that's that we don't just experience anger but oftentimes we actively seek it out we look for reasons to be angry and in our world one of the main ways we do that is through the media i mean i think about reading the news i say that i'm doing this to be informed right that's what i would tell you if you asked me and that's true to some extent. But it's also true that what I'm often looking to be is provoked. There's something empowering in the fear and outrage it causes me to experience. And look, I'm not in the habit of giving you rules about your media diet right? Because there aren't hard and fast rules, and I can't tell you that you should and shouldn't watch or do these things in some specific way, but I know that the way that a lot of us, including myself, engage in this modern world of media is gutting our souls. There is no reason for hour upon hour to watch the constant fear-mongering of cable news. There's no good reason to spend our afternoons listening to talk radio or our nights reading and watching YouTube videos aimed at telling us how terrible the world is. Living in that place, in the kind of deep immersed way that some of us do makes us unhappy and cynical and discouraged and ticked off and none of those are the virtues of Christ maybe the best way to reflect on that on our media diet is that it's just that a diet right it's it's fine to watch and listen to those things in moderation it can even be good and healthy but, but outrage media is like the Tabasco sauce of your media diet, right? It can provide some engaging spice and that's fine. But if you just sit, or, if I just sat around pouring Tabasco sauce into my mouth, right? Uncut, unstopping, you know that's not going to end well. So take that for what it is. Um, as much as there's some other things that we need to say here in a minute, just being mindful of how much of that outrage we consume does begin to help us address our anger. But that said, Just changing our media diet isn't going to solve things. That requires something deeper. We need a solution to our wrath, a solution to wrath. As we said, our anger is at root an idolatry born of fear. As we think about what to do about that, that should clue us into a couple of things right away. A couple of things that are very unwise in how we respond. First, we can't just pretend like we aren't angry. Now, yes, we are to control our actions and seek to keep anger from spilling over and harming others. However, anger isn't at root about our choice, but about our disordered desires. We have a warped understanding of the world and our place in it. And until that starts to change, we're going to remain angry people. And second, it also means that we just can't fix it in some direct way. That's always a dilemma of idolatry. If we have been deceived into thinking we are God, we cannot fix ourselves. Trying only feeds into the delusion. We're still trying to be our own saviors. We need something outside of ourselves to work healing. So what do we do? What's the solution then to our anger? The best way to think of it is that anger is like a problem with our vision. We talk about being blinded by rage, and this is actually more apt than we might think. So if we want to heal, we need to practice seeing right. In particular, we need to reorient our vision on two pictures. Two pictures, God on the throne and God on the cross. First, we need to fix our eyes on God on the throne. This is the emphasis of Psalm 37. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5 says, trust in him and he will do this trust that God is in control and that he is the judge and king of the universe and that he will ultimately bring justice to all that's wrong in the world. We must learn to trust in God's wrath instead of turning to ours. Miroslav Wolf, a theologian, has this really striking portion in one of his books, Exclusion and Embrace. He talks about lecturing to these people in eastern europe who have been through brutal horrible injustice their homes destroyed their children killed these people are hungry for justice and wolf he kind of he kind of comes there with these ideas about this concept he's you know this theologian of like the nonviolence of god or something but as he confronts these people he comes to realize that they really have a simple choice either they will believe in a just and wrathful god or they will themselves be wrathful people. Here's how he puts it. He says, in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence can't resist using violence themselves. And so violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. We need justice in this universe. We need a being in control. And we need wrath. In the face of shattered homes and ruined people, there's too much hurt and pain and evil for there not to be such wrath. The only way to challenge our wrath, then, our idea that we are this judge, is to remind ourselves that God is. How can we practice seeing that reality? Well, one very practical answer is simply this when we are angry, one of the best ways to reorient ourselves back towards God is to pray. Prayer soothes that angry soul. And that isn't easy. In fact, because wrath is idolatry, the times when we're angry are often the times we least want to pray. But they are also the times that we need it most. As the hurt and pain pours into us, unless we want to let it explode out again, we need to pour it out at the feet of our Father. And I am not good at this, turning from anger to prayer. I am not. But on those occasions when the Spirit draws my heart to do it, it is a powerful thing. Because in that moment, I am acting out my trust in God. I'm venting my frustrations to him and asking him to intervene. And the anger actually starts to shrink and lose its power. And I think it's because in that moment, I am shrinking and losing my pretense of power. I'm being reminded that God is on the throne. So we need to see God on the throne. At the same time, what is even more necessary is to fix our eyes on God on the cross. God on the cross. We need a God who shows wrath toward evil and will judge, but that's not the whole story, and that in itself won't end our anger. Scripture teaches us that for all the truth of God's justice, the turning point of the story rests in a display of unexpected mercy. God became a human being in Jesus, and he suffered and died himself as the object of the wrath we deserve. This is the other side of the coin, the other answer God gives to our sins, his wrath borne by himself on the cross. As he died, Jesus somehow bore God's wrath. He drank and drank of it, suffered what is deserved by all the pain and sin and evil and abuse and brokenness of the world. He took its punishment and suffered it himself. It is in that picture of God's wrath poured out on this bloody broken man who was somehow God himself that we finally find the fire quenched. The reason is that the cross takes our eyes off the justice we demand of others, and instead forces us to confront the justice demanded of us. The thing about our anger is that if we're going to sustain it, we have to convince ourselves that we are in the right. We are the good guys. When we're mad, isn't that the first step to rehearse how little old innocent me was just minding my business? And then look what they did. I'm always the hero. In the story of anger. Even if I admit my part in it, I'm minimizing it, right? It's like, well, you know, I'm not perfect, as if anybody's in danger of thinking that. I have my faults, as if that's what I have, our faults, while they're doing these horrible, depraved things. What the cross does is short-circuit that process of anger. It teaches us before anything else that we are not the good guys. As Paul would put it in Romans 3, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about this. It wasn't just those people who did this to God. It wasn't their evil that he bore. It was ours. The twisted darkness inside of you and me was so dark that the sun went out and the earth shook and the man who bore it screamed, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that's true, The only way to understand wrath is as something we deserve, something of which each of us is absolutely and equally worthy Concretely, looking at the cross means cultivating a discipline of regular repentance. One of the reasons I value this Lenten season is that it gives us a chance to practice deep repentance, and that is essential for two reasons. First, because as we said, it undoes our delusions of being the heroes. It reminds us of our sin, and second, it allows us to experience one of God's sweetest gifts, the gift of mercy. We feel him look at us with eyes that pierce through our pretense and straight to our souls, seeing the dirt and darkness there, and we hear him say in the cross, you are forgiven. I love you, child. That, in the end, is a solution to our wrath to be people who drink deeply of Jesus's mercy, to drink so much of it that there is no room left for the idolatry and fear of anger, to soak in it so much that the flames of wrath don't have anything dry to burn, to take so much of it that it overflows from us and begins to pour out onto those we are angry with. Forgiveness and mercy and love aren't just things that we do. When we're angry, we don't just grit our teeth and suddenly feel merciful instead. Rather, We forgive because Christ forgives us. Forgiveness and mercy and love are things that grow as we experience them from God. They must be planted and nourished in our hearts before they can spread out and nourish those that we meet. The beginning of that mercy is the cross. Only that can ultimately draw us from the throne of our idolatry and to our knees. Only that can quench the inferno of our anger. Only that can heal us of our wrath and teach us instead to be peoples of mercy. Because in the end, the solution to our wrath is that, to be people of the mercy God showed us in our Savior, Jesus Christ.